Hi there microbiology people, this is Dr. B and today we are talking microbial biochemistry which means we are going to talk biomolecules. This corresponds to chapter 7 of the OpenStax book. Now there are four major groups of biomolecules. So these are the building blocks of life and they are carbohydrates, lipids, proteins and nucleic acids. And in this chapter, we are going to focus on the first three because we are going to see nucleic acid structure much more in details when we get to the genetics chapter. Now let's get started with carbon. And I hope that you listened to my little special episode called Dr. B Murders Chemistry because I do talk there quite a bit about bonding, different types of bonds, covalent bonds, and I touch briefly on carbon. Now carbon is the basis of life. And the reason why carbon is so important is because it has the capacity to form up to four covalent bonds, and this allows it to build large and diverse organic compounds. And if you look at, you know, in the textbook or lecture slides, you can see a number of examples of structures. They can build long chains, branch chains. They can form double bonds, simple bonds, and they can form also rings. In summary, carbon atoms have a structure that allows them to form very diverse, very uh, varied um, biomolecules, organic molecules, chains, branch chains, rings, etc. Now, when we talk about organic molecules, we can start with the simplest kind of organic molecules, which are what we call hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons, as the name indicates, are made of only carbon and hydrogen. And you have seen the names methane, ethane, propane, butane, and then others that can sound like ethene instead of ethane. But, you know, what you think when you hear propane and butane, you think about fuels. So, indeed, hydrocarbons are very energy-rich, and they serve as fuels. They are also nonpolar. Recall that nonpolar molecules are those where the covalent bonds have an equal distribution of the electrons. So there are no more positive or more negative side of the molecules, and that makes them also hydrophobic. So you know that gas doesn't really mix it with water. So hydrocarbons are hydrophobic. They don't easily dissolve in water. Now, from hydrocarbons, how do we get this amazing diversity of organic molecules? That happens with the help of what we call the functional group. So functional groups are a group of atoms bonded to a carbon of an organic compound, which provides them with some kind of property. And that can be polarity, acidity, or other things. And what we are going to do next is we are going to look over the different um, functional groups and define the organic compounds, organic groups that are associated to that specific functional group. The first functional group, group to discuss is a hydroxyl group or OH, and this is going to define the organic alcohols. 
Think, for example, of ethane, which is the hydrocarbon that had two carbons. If you add an OH, oxygen and hydrogen, to the end, then you obtain ethanol or ethyl alcohol, which is the alcohol that is present in alcoholic beverages. OH groups can be one at the end of the chain or can be in the middle of the chain and more than one. So it doesn't have to be only one. And we are going to find hydroxyl group not only in alcohols, but also in sugars. And that's going to add to the polar nature of sugars. So having that oxygen, and remember that oxygen is like a, a bigger planet, so it's going to attract electrons away from the hydrogen. It's going to uh, provide a some polarity to the molecules. So whenever you see alcohols of sugars, you can consider them a polar or more polar molecule, for sure much more polar than hydrocarbons. The second functional group is the carbonyl group. So this is a carbon double bonded oxygen. And depending where this group is attached to the hydrocarbon chain, if it's to the middle or the end, we talk about ketones and aldehydes. So if this carbonyl group, the carbon double bond oxygen, is in the middle of the chain somewhere, or let's say it's not at the end of the chain, then we talk about ketones. And when it's at the very end of the chain, then we call that an aldehyde. And if the carbonyl group is added to the end carbon of a chain, then what you're actually going to see is carbon double bond oxygen and a hydrogen, because that's how that last carbon of the chain is going to have its four valences occupied. So, for example, if you take ethane, remember the hydrocarbon with two carbons, and you substitute the uh, hydrogens, two hydrogens of the end, with an oxygen, so it would be the double bonded oxygen as a uh, carbonyl group, then you obtain acetaldehyde. So this would be basically CH3, C, double bonded oxygen, and H. And again, ketones would require the carbonyl group to be inserted into the, the inside of the chain, so not at the end of the chain. So wherever it is in the middle of the chain, that carbon is not going to have any hydrogen attached to it. They're going to see carbon, then carbon with a double bonded oxygen, and then another carbon, because the carbon is going to have two valences occupied by the double bond with oxygen, and then two more occupied with the carbons bordering it. And something also to um, taking consideration is that alcohols can become carbonyl groups. So the OH group can become carbonyl through oxidation. So carbonyl is more oxidized than alcohol. The next group is the carboxyl group. And this is COOH. And the way it looks like is that you have a car, and this is always at the end of the chain. You are going to have carbon double bounded to oxygen one side and then simple bonded to another oxygen which in turn is bonded to a hydrogen. So this is going to be the group of organic acids and an example would be vinegar. 
So vinegar is also called acetic acid. And if you again picture ethane, the two carbon hydrocarbon, you would remove the two hydrogens from the end and instead you attach double bonded oxygen one side and then a single bonded oxygen on the other side which in turn is bonded with the hydrogen and that is going to be acetic acid. Okay, let's revisit really quickly these three groups that we have seen. So we saw first the hydroxyl group which is OH and this is typical of alcohols. Then we saw the carbonyl group, which is carbon double-bonded oxygen, and this forms either aldehydes, if the, the group is at the end of the chain, or ketones, if the group is not at the end of the chain. And the next one was the carboxyl group, COOH, which is carbon double-bonded oxygen one side, single bonded oxygen on the other side with a hydrogen attached, and this is characteristic of organic acids. Now we are going to move on to a different group because all the previous had oxygen in it, and this one has nitrogen instead. The amino group NH2 is going to provide the molecule a basic, meaning an alkaline character. So remember that carboxyl was COOH, the organic acid. The amino, NH2, is alkaline. And we are going to see amino acids later on. And amino acids are, have this very special or characteristic structure in that they have both an amino group, NH2, and the acidic group, COOH, on the other side. The next group is the sulfhydryl group, which is almost like a hydroxyl group, but instead of an oxygen, it has a sulfur atom. So it's going to be an SH. And where do you see sulfur in biomolecules? There are a couple of amino acids that contain these sulfhydryl groups. A little bit bigger and more complicated but very uh, important group is the phosphate group. And it's uh, symbolized by PO4 minus. And this is because this is actually a negatively charged group. It's a negative ion. So you have a phosphate atom bound to four oxygen atoms. And we are going to see this phosphate group in several groups of biomolecules. We are going to see them in phospholipids. We are going to see them in ATP, which is a very important energy molecule. And we are also going to see them in nucleic acids. Last but not least, uh, I want to mention the methyl group. Methyl group is CH3. So it's one carbon bound to three hydrogens. And this is a group that is very interesting. So addition of a methyl group may change the character of the molecule. And this is something that can be seen in molecular biology, specifically with DNA. So when DNA molecules become methylated, this makes the DNA kind of silence. It's less accessible. 
So we are not really going to talk much about methyl groups while talking about biomolecules, but I just wanted to, to make a, be aware that it's a very simple and humble-looking group, but it can have very important repercussions in life and specifically how DNA is processed. So I'm moving on now to these different groups of biomolecules, but before we do it, let's look at some um, general concepts related to biomolecules. And one of it is the concept of monomer versus polymer. So many, not all, but most biomolecules are large molecules built on of smaller subunits. So the smaller subunits, we call them monomers, and then they can bind to each other to form polymers. For example, in the case of carbohydrates, simple sugars are what we call monosaccharides. So these are very simple, very small subunits, and then these sugars, monosaccharides, come together and build large polysaccharides. Think, for example, starch. Uh, in the case of proteins, proteins are large molecules, but their building blocks and monomers are amino acids. And similarly, nucleic acids, such as DNA and RNA, are built of nucleotides. And so nucleotides are the monomers, and nucleic acids are the polymers. Now, how are polymers built, or uh, so how are monomers coming together to form polymers or polymers broken to release monomers? So the next um, pair of concepts is hydrolysis and dehydration. Okay, so if you take two monomers and you remove a hydrogen from one and an OH hydroxyl group from another, so basically you are making water, you are taking water from those two monomers, then you can build a polymer, okay? So dehydration, removal of water, makes polymers out of monomers, okay? So let me repeat it. Two monomers, water is removed from them, dehydration, and that's going to make those two monomers bind together and form a polymer. Conversely, if you have a polymer and you add water, hydrolysis happens, lysis breakage. So the addition of water is going to break polymers to monomers. So you want to be clear with that. Hydrolysis breaks molecules, breaks polymers into monomers, and dehydration, which is removal of water, is going to bind monomers in order to build polymers. And with this, let's look in detail to the different groups of biomolecules, and we are going to start with carbohydrates, carbs. What are carbohydrates? These are organic molecules that contain carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And they have varied functions, but their major, most important function is to be cellular food, cellular fuel. And as we were saying before, they can be simple sugars called monosaccharides. These are the monomers. These monosaccharides can bind to each other and they can form disaccharides. So these are two sugars together. Or many of them can bind to each other and this is where we have the polymers, polysaccharides. Let's get started with simple sugars. 
the most common monosaccharides or simple sugars are going to have six or five carbons. And for example, the most known um, sugar, which is glucose, is going to have six carbons. And the same with fructose. So glucose, it's also called dextrose, and fructose are the components or the disaccharide sucrose, which is uh, table sugar. As to the functional groups present in monosaccharides, they are going to have several hydroxyl groups, OH. Remember that we talked about how the hydroxyl group was going to be present in alcohols and also in sugars. And in addition, they are going to have a carbonyl group. Recall that carbonyl group, which was the carbon with a double bonded oxygen, could be at the end. This is one we call them aldehydes, or it, they can be in the middle of the chain, and that's when they call them ketones. So those sugars that have um, the carbonyl group at the end, aldehydes, we call them aldoses. And those that have the carbonyl group in the middle, we call them ketoses. So in the case you're interested, the, the glucose molecule is a hexose, and it's actually an aldose because the carbonyl group is at the very end. And as I was mentioned before, disaccharides are formed by the union of two monosaccharides. The most common one would be saccharose slash sucrose, table sugar, which has one glucose and one fructose. Lactose, which has a bad reputation, you know, this is a sugar that is present in milk, is the combination of glucose and a monosaccharide called galactose. And two glucoses together form the disaccharide called maltose. Polysaccharides are polymers of sugars, and they can have either a structural or a storage role. Among the most common storage polysaccharides, we have starch that is present in plants and glycogen that is present in animals. If you are eating a lot of carbs the night before a race, doing your carbo loading, what you are doing is providing a lot of sugar to your body, particularly your muscles and your liver, to make a lot of glycogen. So you have that uh, polysaccharide, that source of fuel, ready to go next morning. Uh, among the structural polysaccharides, we have cellulose, which is what we call indigestible fiber from plants. And in arthropods, we have chitin. And remember that all these polysaccharides, starch, glycogen, cellulose, and chitin, they are all just polymers of the simple sugar molecule. I also have to remind you that when we saw the uh, structure of the cell, specifically the peptidoglycan, they will contain modified glucose molecules. The next group is that of lipids, also called fats. And lipids are a very unique group for a number of reasons. One of them is that they are very diverse. So we are not going to find this monomer-polymer relationship that we find in other groups of biomolecules. They are going to have <clears throat> different structures depending on the type of fat. And although they also contain carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, such as carbohydrates do, they are very hydrophobic. And the groups of lipids are neutral fats, also called triglycerides, phospholipids, waxes, and steroids. 
And for both triglycerides and phospholipids, the, the basic or one of the basic buildings of these fats is an alcohol called glycerol. And glycerol is a very interesting alcohol. It has three carbons. So we are looking at the chain of three carbons and each carbon has a hydroxyl OH group attached. Now, in the case of triglycerides, that glycerol, each of these OH groups is going to bind a fatty acid molecules. So that's why they are called triglycerides, because they have three fatty acid chains attached to that glycerol molecule. And how are triglycerides formed? Well, you recall that uh, when small molecules or small units bind to each other to form larger molecules that happens through dehydration. So the glycerol is going to let go of one H of each of the OH groups and the fatty acid chains. Remember, this is an acidic group. So they have the COOH group in one end. They let go of the OH group. So H from glycerol plus OH from the fatty acid is going to make water. So through dehydration, triglycerides form, form again, glycerol and three fatty acids. Fatty acids are long hydrocarbon chains with a carboxyl group at the end. So what is typical of any fatty acid that they are very nonpolar and hydrophobic molecules and clearly they are not going to be soluble in water. Now, something that is slightly different between amino acids comes with the presence or not of double bonds. So you may have heard the word saturated and unsaturated fatty acid, and probably also that saturated fatty acids are not very healthy. So saturated fatty acids are those that only have simple bonds. And unsaturated fatty acids contain uh, double bonds. And the difference is that when there are double bonds in the structure of a fatty acid, it becomes slightly more flexible. So for that reason, triglycerides containing saturated fatty acid tend to be solid at room temperature, think butter or lard. And if uh, the triglycerides contain fatty acid with um, double bonds, so unsaturated fatty acids, they tend to be liquid at room temperature, so think oils. Now, the next group, phospholipid, is actually very similar. So imagine a triglyceride, you know, the glycerol and then the fatty acid. But instead of the third fatty acid, you will have a phosphate group. And you may recall that we talked about the phosphate group by being a negatively charged group. That was the phosphate with the four oxygens, PO4. And what that does to the phospholipid molecule is that it's going to have this double nature because the two fatty acids are going to remain very hydrophobic. But that uh, group, that phosphate group with a negative charge, is very polar and very hydrophilic. So we talk about um, <clears throat> phospholipids having this polar head and non-polar tail, right? So it's going to have the capacity to interact both with water through its polar head, 
hydrophilic head where the phosphate group is, and with fats through its hydrophobic tails with the other two fatty acids. And this is extremely important considering the role of phospholipids as part of the, or I would say the most important part of the uh, cell membrane. As you may recall, the cell membrane is a phospholipid bilayer. So we have the polar heads of the phospholipids pointing outside and inside to the watery environment of the cell or the watery environment of the cytoplasm, but then the fatty acid tails pointing inward in a double layer will uh, form a boundary that is very hard for polar substances to cross. And among lipids, we also mentioned um, steroids. And steroids are all related to cholesterol. Their structure is completely different from anything we have seen before in the, in the lipid group. It's four interlocked rings. And basically, all steroids are going to have that basic ring structure. And that's the, the groups attached to it that is going to change. The third major group of biomolecules that we are going to talk today are proteins. And proteins are also called polypeptides. And they do have the monomer-polymer relationship with the monomers being amino acids and the polymers being proteins slash polypeptides. Um, the components of proteins, or sorry, the elements of the proteins are carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and also nitrogen. So this is new. Both lipids and carbohydrates get, had carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. So um, proteins have also nitrogen, and some of them, because some amino acids have them, will contain sulfur and phosphorus. Proteins can have a huge variety of function. They can be enzymes, which means that they catalyze chemical reactions. They can be transporters. They can be structural. You know, think about proteins that are part of your skin or your bones, muscles, etc. They can be important communicators between cells. So we have receptors, hormones. They are important in defense. We are going to talk about antibodies when we get to immunology, but also in clotting factors. So again, they are very diverse in their structure and in their function. And um, the monomers, again, are amino acids, and there are 20 amino acids. So what proteins are, are you know, just a series of amino acids bound together. And spoiler alert, uh, when we get to the genetics part, we are going to learn how the genetic information that we carry in our DNA is basically the sequence of amino acids in order to make proteins. Regarding amino acids, first of all, think about the name, amino acids. So amino acids, by definition, have two functional groups in them. They have the amino group, which is the NH2 group, which remember, it has an alkaline character, and it has the acidic carboxyl group, COOH. So the basic structure of a amino acid, you have a carbon in the middle. From the carbon, one side has the amino group. To the other side has a carboxyl group. The third side has a hydrogen. And then the fourth side has what we call the R group. 
And this R group is a side chain, and the type of side chain is going to determine what kind of amino acid it is and how it behaves. For example, the simplest and smallest amino acid is glycine. And the R group in glycine is basically a hydrogen atom. But it can have simple or longer side chains. And this side chain can contain additional functional groups. For example, lysine contains four more carbons on that side chain, but at the end of that side chain, there is an additional amino group. So for that reason, lysine is going to be an, a basic uh, amino acid, one that has an alkaline nature. In contrast, aspartate has another carbon in the side chain attached to a carboxyl group. So aspartate, aspartate or aspartic acid will have two carboxyl groups, two acidic groups. So this is an amino acid that's going to be more on the acidic side, and so on and so on. So again, there are 20 amino acids, and you don't have to learn each and every structure, but just be aware that depending on the group that is attached, that R side chain, amino acids can be acidic, can be basic, can be polar, can be very nonpolar. So we are, they are going to be very varied. How do amino acids form proteins? Well, you know the answer in regarding the name of the reaction. So it's going to be two monomers forming a polymer. Indeed, it's a dehydration reaction. So the OH group, that is part of the carboxyl group, okay? Carboxyl COOH, that's the acidic group, has an OH. And then one of the hydrogens of the amino group of another um, amino acid are going to, you know, form water. And the bond that is formed between the acidic group of one amino acid and the amino group of the other amino acid is a very specific covalent bond, very strong bond called the peptide bond. And amino acids bind to each other over and over and over. So when it's only a few, let's say less than 50 amino acids, we call them peptides. And over 50 amino acids, then we call them polypeptides or proteins. So this um, sequence of amino acids forming this polypeptide chain with the use of peptide bonds is what we call the primary structure of a protein. So let me repeat this because this is important. So amino acids bind to each other via peptide bonds, which are covalent, very strong bonds. And the order in which they bind is determined. So it's not only that we are going to take, I don't know, 10 valines and 20 glutamines and 13 lysines and 21 serines and so on. They have to go in a certain order if they are going to become a certain protein. And again, we are going to see this more in detail when we get to genetics, but the instructions of how to string together amino acids to form specific protein is the actual genetic information, the instructions of how to make this happen. Now, this, this amino acid chain, this primary structure of proteins can fold in space. 
So there will be additional structural levels of protein. So the primary, again, it's just the amino acids bound in a, via peptide bonds. But then there is a secondary, a tertiary, and a quaternary protein structure. Which is which? Um, the secondary um, structure is basically that polypeptide chain, that amino acid chain, folding in space. And this folding can be of two kinds. Alpha helix is a kind of helix. So it's going to kind of form a spiral in space. And beta sheet or beta pleated sheet is like when you're folding a paper. It's going to be this little back and forth, uh, more um, rigid kind of structure. Now, don't imagine that one polypeptide chain is going to fold completely into an alpha helix or in a beta sheet. Some parts are going to form alpha helices, other parts are going to form beta sheets. The tertiary structure is what we call the superimposed folding of the secondary structures. So um, I don't know how many of you have seen the old uh, phone cables when they still used to have cables, you know, the landlines with a, with a little coiled cable. So imagine you take that coiled uh, phone cable and then you twist it over and over in space around itself. That would be kind of a tertiary structure. And the bonds that hold this tertiary structure together are much weaker bonds. And we have talked earlier about hydrogen bonds. So hydrogen bonds are weak bonds. They don't make molecules, but they can bind either different molecules or parts of a large molecule. So hydrogen bonds are important in that, but there are also additional um, interactions between groups such as desulfide bridges. These are those sulfhydryl uh, groups we mentioned before, the sulfur and hydrogen, SH groups, they can interact with each other, but there are also other weaker interactions that can still hold the chain in this very unique three-dimensional structure in space. And quaternary structure only applies to those proteins that consist of more than one polypeptide chain. So the classical example of hemoglobin, the protein that transport oxygen in the blood, hemoglobin has four chains. So those four chains together with an iron uh, containing group in the middle is what forms the, uh, the working hemoglobin molecule. But we can see the tertiary structure as what we call the native structure of the protein. And what we mean by native means that that's the structure at which the protein is actually working. One of the major um, principles in biology is what we call the correspondence of structure and function. And you can see this at all levels. You may recall that when we talked about cells a long time ago, we said, well, it's a little bit like cars. You know, you have a generic car. It has the, you know, the, the basic parts of a car, but you can have cars of very different shapes and forms depending on the function of the car, you know, from semi uh, truck to a sports car. 
kind of the same way you see the same structure function relationship between cell cell types and also in at the molecular level so a let's say more structural protein like let's say the keratin that is in your skin or some kind of uh, protein that contracts in your muscle is going to have a very different shape from let's say an antibody molecule but in order to perform that function correctly the protein needs to have that three-dimensional structure and if it doesn't have it for some reason it loses that structure then we talk about the protein being denatured and we will see that that denaturation can you know can be caused by many things for example higher temperature or um, <clears throat> an extreme pH and sometimes it's reversible and sometimes it's irreversible but again this native structure refers to this three-dimensional structure of a protein at which it's capable to do its own function now just to highlight a little bit the importance of structure and how any small change can you know drastically alter the, the function of a protein let me give you the example of hemoglobin again so the healthy hemoglobin works you know carrying oxygen but in sickle cell anemia the uh, structure of the hemoglobin has changed drastically you can see this how uh, the red blood cells in sickle cell anemia have a very unusual appearance like a sickle but this is due to the change in one amino acid only one amino acid causes that incredible change in the structure of hemoglobin so we are going to talk about mutations also in the genetics chapter so how changes in dna can cause changes in protein and how it can have devastating consequences in uh, in the individual and with this we have arrived to the end of the chapter corresponding to um, biomolecules and we are going to talk more in future chapters episodes when we talk about metabolic pathways thank you